You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's just gone 8 p.m. I'm Alameen Templeton. It's Friday night and it's time for Current Affairs. Yes, having a look at uh, some of the major news developments throughout the week. A uh, bit of a retrospective. Um, there have been quite a few events uh, throughout this week. Uh, we've had uh, the, the Hamas response to uh, peace <coughs> uh, ceasefire deals. We've, that's now already been rejected by Benjamin Netanyahu uh, in the United States. Genocide Joe and um, a bomb bomb Donald Trump are basically going, preparing to go head to head into the elections. And now it seems like both of them are fighting over who's who's hard on immigration. Uh, turns out, turns out Joe Biden is turning into an immigration hawk. Uh, United States uh, continues uh, like making noises about oh yes no we don't we want to stop we want to stop the fighting it's a little bit over the top now. I wonder. I wonder when genocide becomes too over the top. Is it like just before everyone is wiped out? Or is it after everyone is wiped out? I suppose, uh, you know, um, the Jews like to make much about, um, about, uh, about Holocaust denialism. Uh, but if you've, um, if you've, if you, if you consider the, the fact, uh, you know, people after the Holocaust denying that it happened, I say 40 years later, you're not alive, you don't know, you haven't spoken to anyone who was there, and you don't believe it. Is that as bad as someone not believing it while it is happening? Because you see, the people who can stop a genocide are the people who are alive while it happens. So the worst kind of genocide denialism is to deny a genocide while it happens. I came across a, a great quote today. And it basically said that uh, agreeing to stand on the sidelines while a stronger power uh, persecutes a weaker power and you decide to stand on the sidelines, you're not being neutral. You're siding with the, with the stronger, with the, with the oppressor. Mm, yeah, the worst kind of Holocaust denialism is happening today, and it's alive and well, and it's alive and well in the United States. Jazakumullah for joining us. I'm Alameen Templeton, and I'll be with you for the next hour or so as we go through uh, some really juicy little news stories that seem to have slipped through the wires today, uh, throughout the week. I've picked up one here. A Japanese defense firm is cutting tires with Nazi Israel over the genocide. Uh, we'll be looking at in the show how Israel is getting around the Houthis with Arab help. Yeah. China has accused the United States of, choke, of stoking genocide in Arabia. We'll be bringing you details of Nicaragua's genocide case against the uh, um, United States and uh, American governments. Uh, the United States has poured cold water of Israel's rougher attack plans. I don't know if that's big, if they're intending to stop Israel from attacking Rafah, or if they're saying, well, we don't think they should attack Rafah because they know they are going to attack Rafah, and then afterwards they can say, well, we didn't support them. We said they shouldn't do it, uh, but we didn't stop them. We just stood by and provided them with ammunition. 
Four million children displaced in Sudan. And almost nothing has been said about it. The EU says there's no evidence for UNRWA support for Hamas. A British aircraft carrier breaks down on its maiden voyage uh, to go and take over the world. And Blinken's support for Israel could cost him the presidency. Yes, that's what we've got coming up in the show tonight. Hopefully we'll be able to get through all of it. It's probably a bit of a, a, a tall order. Uh, but yes, uh, a lot of very, very interesting little stories uh, coming up in tonight's show. So stay tuned. One of Japan's biggest firms, defense firm, Itochu, has decided to end its partnership with a major Israeli defense company specifically due to Israel's genocide in Gaza. How about that? Like so, like no skin in this fight, Japanese right on the other side of the world, but they can see. They can see what is happening. They don't have to be told by, by uh, 10 lawyers and uh, some legal counsel, some political advisors, some, uh, some inter institutional funders. Uh, as to what they should say and do. They can just have a look at things, use their own brain, their own heart, their own conscience, and they can say, this is genocide. Hmm? You don't have to be an expert at all. You only have to be human with a beating heart. Uh, Itochu Aviation will end its strategic cooperation with Israel's Elbit systems by the end of the month. That's after the International Court of Justice ordered Israel to prevent acts of genocide against Palestinians and to do more to help civilians. Itochu Aviation, Albert Systems and a Nippon Aircraft Supply signed a strategic cooperation memorandum of understanding in March last year. Taking into consideration the International Court of Justice's order on January 26th, and that the Japanese government supports the role of the court, we have already suspended new activities related to the Memorandum of Understanding and plan to end the MOU by the end of February, said a torture chief financial officer, Chiyoshi Hachimura. The Japanese firm had sought guidance from Japan's foreign ministry had told the company to observe the ICJ's findings in good faith, a spokesman for Otachu said on Thursday. So, the Houthis, the poorest country in the world, the only country in the world that's prepared to fight the richest country in the world, the poorest Muslim country, the poorest country with Muslims in it. We can't say if all of these countries are Muslim. You can't say Saudi Arabia is a Muslim country. It's Rubai guy, has got a Muslim name. I don't know, it's a Muslim family. But uh, uh, it's a it's, um, method of government who cannot be described as Islamic in any way. Um, so can you say Saudi Arabia is a Muslim country? It's an Islamic country. Maybe we should differentiate between a Muslim country and an Islamic country. A Muslim country would be a country of majority Muslims. An Islamic country is in a country that lives according to Islamic standards. I wonder if there's any country in the world today that can claim that. Hmm. So, yeah, the, the, the poorest Muslim country in the world is the only Muslim country prepared to stand up against the richest country in the world with the biggest army. Hmm. Doesn't that like say something? Saudi Arabia has got so much money, so many arms, 
much closer to apartheid Israel and Gaza than the Yemenis, but it's doing nothing. With all of its wealth, with all of its power, it's doing nothing. I know many people are still holding out so that maybe one day the, the, the Saudi Arabia or the UAE is going to act on behalf of Gaza, but I wouldn't be putting my money on it mainly because ISIS re-emerging in northern Iraq means that the UAE and the Saudi funders are getting their mercenaries together and uh, they're ensuring that some pressure has been put on the Iraqi government on behalf of Nazi Israel. So that's a very far away from going around and uh, actually confronting Nazi Israel. It's a, it's a very big, a very, very far stretch of uh, a few universes of imagination to be able to picture the guys who are helping ISIS in northern Iraq in, in support of Nazi Israel eventually turning around and opposing Israel. Still a very, very, very long way to go. And, uh, yeah, so in order to get around the Houthis, Israel is using a land route through several Arab countries to avoid a blockade by Yemen's Houthis, according to Hebrew language media today. Israel is reportedly importing goods through the Persian Gulf via the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and Jordan in an attempt to bypass the Houthi-blocked shipping route through the Red Sea. After the start of the Israeli aggression on the Gaza Strip, the Houthis launched numerous attacks on ships that delivered goods to Israel, which significantly affected global trade. That, along with the United States and British naval and airstrikes against Yemeni rebels, has forced ships to, forced ships to use an alternative route that runs, through South, runs around South Africa's Cape of Good Hope and through the Mediterranean, making travel and therefore much of global trade more expensive and time-consuming. In an attempt to circumvent these circumstances, Israel confirmed back in December it was planning a land route stretching from the east of the Arabian Peninsula to Israel as an alternative route that could potentially reduce the cost and length of time to transport goods. Israel and the Arab states of the Persian Gulf initially did not confirm the reports and some, such as the, as the Jordanian government, denied the formation of such a route. However, Israel's Channel 13 reported this week that the ships were headed for the Persian Gulf and from where they depart from Dubai and the UAE, they pass through Saudi Arabia and Jordan and finally reach the Jordan Bridge in Israel. These media allegations caused great anger in the Arab public, denouncing this alleged route as the path of shame. The operations are said to be between two companies, UA-based Pure Trans FCZO and Israel-based Trucknet, which transports goods by truck consisting of food, plastics, chemicals, and electronic devices or components. The process is said to be a pilot test before full use of the route, but a broadcast on Channel 13 confirms reports of an Israeli plan with the permission of those Arab states despite the occupation war in Gaza and war crime allegations. It comes after Israel's Minister of Transport and Road Safety, Miriam Regev, revealed last month she was leading plans to develop the route, stating on X, formerly known as Twitter, that overland freight transport will cut the time by 12 days and greatly reduce existing waiting times due to wire problems. We'll do it and we will succeed, she said. 
Well, now we know how China has been so like sort of not involved in any of this. Hmm? And China is a huge big country. Let's say economy is fast approaching the same size as the United States. Uh, whether or not uh, if it becomes the same size, if it will be as competitive is an, an argument that I'm not going to engage in. But nevertheless, just like Saudi Arabia, China could be doing more, you feel. We wonder why isn't China doing more, given the aggression that's out, that America is placing on it over to Taiwan and the South China Sea. It's very clear that even when um, American politicians make nice noises about China, that it means nothing, because behind the scenes, uh, they're continuing to ramp up their aggression and their planned aggressions uh, against mainland China. One... You know, you get a feeling that Americans think the Chinese don't read their media. The Amer American politicians, they go to China, they say one thing. And before they go to China, they say a whole lot of things in America that make very clear they view China as the evil enemy number one. And they're going to go there to take out China. Then they get to China and say, yes, we must work on a, a new trade agreement. We must work on cooperation in space. We must do these things and... Yeah, we must work on global global warming and so on. And the Chinese smile and nod and shake their hand and put them back on the plane. And back they go. But the Chinese know that they're lying and speaking nonsense when they arrive because they've read their newspapers before they took off. So I've always felt that there is a lot of uh, room for China to stake, take a step forward to get onto the front foot against America. But it, it, it never seems to do that. I don't know if it's an innately Chinese characteristic or what, or maybe it's part of the culture. We focus on China alone and their internal China dynamics, and that's for the rest of the world. Well, they can do as they please. It's got nothing to do with us. A bit like America, I suppose. But... Uh, as that American aggression uh, increases and gets closer and closer to some kind of direct confrontation, we see um, Kim Jong-un of uh, North Korea saying he's not interested in peace talks with South Korea and he's quite prepared to bomb them with nuclear bombs if he has to. Uh, he just said that yesterday. Well, something along those lines, you know. Um, yes, very much. Things are getting very tense in South, uh, Southeast Asia. Myanmar, Korea, you've got the Taiwan-China tensions, and America doing its best to stoke all kinds of things and, and build up alliances uh, am among Southeast Asian nations. So one feels that there is plenty of room and cause, uh, motivation for China to actually go on the offensive against America, but they very, very rarely do so. But this week they actually came out and said quite bluntly for, for a Chinese statement, um, basically making the accusation, they usually don't accuse, they have accused the United States of stoking already high tensions there in Arabia due to its failure to implement a ceasefire in Gaza and its retaliatory airstrikes on Iran-backed groups in Iraq and Syria. I'm not sure if China is uh, trying to win favor with some uh, some countries, maybe maybe Iran, 
bring you, try and bring you rock uh, into the fold, perhaps. Um, but yeah, it's 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 uh, singled out uh, strikes on Iraq and Syria. In a strongly worded speech at the UN Security Council this week, Jean Jung, China's UN ambassador, criticized the US for defying appeals from its Arab allies and much of the international community to back a permanent ceasefire. Jun said China has repeatedly emphasized that an immediate ceasefire in Gaza is a critical override prerequisite for everything else and a top priori- priority for international diplomatic efforts. All parties should heed the strong call and the overwhelming consensus of the international community and support the Security Council in taking strong actions to promote an immediate ceasefire, he said. The U.S. has become increasingly isolated in the international community for using its veto at the U.N. Security Council to block ceasefire efforts. Instead of a permanent ceasefire, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan reiterated Washington is seeking a sustained pause in hostilities to get the remaining Israeli captives out of Gaza and funnel more humanitarian aid into the Strip. The effect... <coughs> Excuse me... <coughs> The offensive has also seeped out beyond the besieged enclave's borders, where it has morphed into a deadly proxy war between the U.S. and Iran. Jun said, as we speak, the, the situation in the Middle East is on the verge of extreme peril. Um, I'm working on getting that term Middle East banned from Marcus Sahaba. Uh, I, 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 I don't ever want to hear that term Middle East again. It's a, it's a very white way of not saying Arabia. You don't want to say Arabia. It's the Middle East. No, it's Arabia. But if you say it's Arabia, then you start thinking about it as one country, as one region, as one nation. But if you say it's the Middle East, then it means nothing. But as soon as you say Arabia, then everyone knows where you're talking about. And they only think of one place. They don't think of, hmm, we've got an oil field that they've declared a country called Kuwait. They've got another oil field called a country that they call Bahrain. They've got another oil field surrounded by borders that they call the UAE, which then are divided into several other little sultanates. Arabia. It's not the Middle East. It's like someone said, um, someone uh, on Facebook the other day, uh, posted on his wall saying, uh, we need another name for South Africa. Calling South Africa sounds like you uh, when you say South Africa, it sounds like you're giving someone directions. So I said, yes, we should, we should instead call ourselves left of Mozambique. <laughs> um, yeah, so the Middle East, similarly in, in much the sh- same vein, means absolutely nothing. It's a nowhere term. Middle East is not even a direction. The Middle East, there's no such thing. East is a vector. It's not a point. Um, So, yeah, Middle East is a term that has been deliberately chosen to de-emphasize the fact that this place is Arabia inhabited by Arabs. So, yeah, I'm, I, I want to get that term Middle East uh, thrown out completely. I, I, see, um, I see Iran likes to call the Middle East West Asia, which is a, a, a similar kind of like South Africa. You know, it's, it's, it's more like a direction than anything. I reckon it should be called Arabia. I would think that the Iranians probably wouldn't agree with that, but uh, that's fine. 
Then we can call it Arabia and Persia, or Arabia and Iran, if they want to call themselves Iran. Arabia and Iran. Doesn't it just sound like you know where you're speaking? You know where you're speaking about. But Middle East, what's that? That means nothing. Um, said Jun, if the U.S. purports that it does not seek to create conflicts in the Middle East or anywhere else, but in reality, it does exactly the opposite. U.S. military actions are undoubtedly stoking new turmoil in this region and further intensifying tensions. The U.S. actions will certainly exacerbate the vicious circle of tit-for-tat violence in the Middle East. We have witnessed too many examples and precedents in this regard, he added. So, yes, uh, is that a sign that China's taking off the gloves? I wouldn't hold my breath if I were you, but it is nice to kind of like see a little bit of extra pressure coming onto the United States and Nazi Israel. Maybe we should call it the Nazi states. The Nazi states and Nazi Israel. Oh. Anyway, uh, there is uh, more, more pressure coming from all kinds of directions. And um, uh, America, I suppose, has got defenses to defend itself from uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. From, uh, you know, they can take on battalions of tanks and so on. But in the end, what is probably going to bring down the United States is uh, the misery of a thousand cuts. Each cut small, almost imperceptible, but each one drawing blood. Until eventually the combined mass of all of those bleeding cuts is going to bring you down. Uh, so in, in this regard, uh, one of the uh, one of those cuts is taking the form of uh, the press, uh, the, the the court uh, interdict being brought being sought by the Nicaraguan government. Uh, they started Monday proceedings to take Germany, the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, Canada. Uh, to the International Court of Justice for their complicity in the genocide against Palestinian people in Gaza by providing the Israeli occupation with the weapons and means to carry out the horrendous act. I don't see the United States named here. Isn't that really interesting? The executive authority in Nicaragua published an official statement in which it revealed that it warned the governments of said Western powers they might be jointly complicit in the flagrant and systematic violations of the Convention of, for the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide and International Humanitarian Law in the Gaza Strip. In its note verbal, uh, Nicaragua urged the four states to immediately cease the provision of arms, munitions, and technologies to Israel because it might use them to facilitate or commit violations of the Genocide Convention. The memorandum underlined that the countries supporting Israel are obligated to cut off supplies from it. From the moment the state becomes aware of the existence of a serious risk of committing genocide, they're not going to be able to say they didn't know. Because the International Court of Justice has found, on a balance of probabilities, after an initial inquest into the allegations made, that genocide is probably happening in Gaza. Okay, they they courts and they judges. They're not like human beings like us. We know it's genocide. 
Now they have to go through those long uh, kind of complicated um, judicial procedures in order to establish beyond reasonable doubt. But we all know beyond reasonable doubt right now that it is genocide that is happening. Uh, Parties that then proceed and go ahead are not going to be able to say later, we didn't know. Because they were warned. And on being warning, on being warned, they should have then taken further steps to establish for themselves what is the situation. The Miranda Nicaragua issued underlined that the countries supporting Israel are obligated to cut off supplies. Um, from the moment they became aware of the existence of a serious risk of committing genocide. This has been achieved, the memorandum adds, since the International Court of Justice issued on January 26 a preliminary ruling in which it considered it reasonable to say that the Genocide Convention is being violated by Israel in Gaza. The court recognized the rights of Palestinians in Gaza to be protected from acts of genocide, adding that the Palestinians are a protected group under the Genocide Convention. The court ordered Israel to take all measures to prevent genocide acts in Gaza, to ensure its its forces do not commit genocide, and take measures to improve the humanitarian situation. Israel is required to submit a a report to the court within a month, detailing its actions to comply with the order. Uh, That will be coming up um, in about two weeks' time. Um, Furthermore, it must implement measures to prevent and punish direct incitement of genocide in the context of its war on Gaza. South Africa has hailed the temporary measures issued by the court uh, against Israel as a decisive victory. Um, And it remains to be seen whether or not the Nicaraguan effort is going to result in a decrease in weapon supplies to Israel. Already we've seen um, Spain, uh, Spanish legislatures, uh, taking steps to reduce their arms exports to Israel. We see Japan is already acknowledging the ICJ ruling and is cutting its ties with arms companies in Israel. Um, And in the meantime, the United States coming out and saying they don't support an attack on Rafah. Do they really mean it? Uh, According to U.S. State Department Deputy Spokesperson Vedant Patel uh, just yesterday, he said the U.S. will not be supportive of Israel's planned offensive in Rafah city in Gaza, noting that such a development could prove disastrous as it lacks serious credible, credible planning. Well, look, when you're just intending to go in there and to murder a woman and children and old men, you don't need much planning. It doesn't take much planning. If your if your if your uh, intent is simple, brutal, thuggish murder, you don't need to do much, especially if you're not worried about being caught. Which takes us back to another thing. It seems to me that Israel believes it's going to get away with it all, because everyone else has already done it. Israel is going to turn around and say, if you want to prosecute us, you're going to have to prosecute the United States. And as long as the United States and the European Union are basically the countries managing the levers of the International Court of Justice, uh, that means that it's never going to happen. Not under this current dispensation, not under, under this rule, rules-based order, as they like to call themselves. 
When the rules apply to them, they don't like to apply them at all. Anyway, uh, so they re they, the, the plan to attack Rafa lacks serious creditable planning, and that's why the United States doesn't want to support it. I'm not saying anything, but we don't want to support genocide. Uh, this comes as the Israeli military is currently preparing to invade the city of Rafa in Gaza's far south, where more than one million Palestinians have sought refuge, a million people. They're hoping to just push them out into, into the Sinai Desert and never let them in again. After failing to agree on concessions proposed by Hamas for a ceasefire, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vowed to continue the war until the unrealistic goal of eliminating the resistance is reached. Well, I suppose Israel could also kind of like say, well, you know, it was Benjamin Netanyahu, you draw out the court case long enough for Benjamin Netanyahu to die, then you say it's all over, and then uh, the Israelis know, you, you just get an Obama. They're going to have to find, I don't know, they're going to have to find a black Jew from, um, from Eritrea that they haven't deported yet. No, quick, 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 the last one. Catch him, catch him before he gets on the boat. Okay, we're going to make you prime minister. There's only one of you, so you can't take over and cause too much trouble. Yeah, they'll have to, but I don't think, yes, yeah, yeah, they would have to get an Eritrean or something like that, because currently at the moment there isn't anyone who's even capable of being an Obama, and he was a sellout anyway. But he had a nice smile, didn't he, and he could, like, rally the troops with a nice voice of his. Uh, yeah. Such is the f finicky, fickle nature of... Uh, of 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 human attention of of human concentration hmm you can see on many of the other news outlets Gaza has been pushed further and further down down the um down the queue even with the SABC here in South Africa sometimes they have news um, news programs without any mention of Gaza at all um according to Patel uh, he said to conduct such an operation right now in Rafa with no planning and little thought in an area where there is a sheltering of a million people would be a disaster. You see, you actually don't need, they're saying it quite clearly there. Uh, but now if the Rafa invasion attack does happen, um, they'll find something else to kind of soft soap it for us. Uh, Patel said, we would not support the undertaking of something like this without serious, creditable planning. He also further noted that the U.S. has not seen any signs of serious planning regarding Israel's offensive in Rafah. White House coordinator for strategic communications, John Kirby, said there were no visible signs suggesting uh, the Israeli occupation forces are preparing an imminent ground offensive in Rafah. We've seen no indications that there's operational planning, or at least planning at the level of specificity that tells us a major ground operation around Rafa is imminent. We just haven't seen a plan for it, said Kirby, during a press briefing. So you don't send the army, and you just bomb it and bomb it and bomb it. Hmm? Ad nauseum. Now, remember Israel, when uh, the International Court of Justice issued this ruling, I think it was on the 26th of January, uh, so on the 26th of February, Israel's due to uh, release its report. Um, <clears throat> issue, uh, the, on, the, on the same day, Israel accused UNRWA, United Nations Refugees um, Agency, that feeds refugees and, and, and provides them with clothing and blankets and uh, a place to stay, as opposed to the UNHCR, the, human, the, the High Commissioner for Refugees, which... Uh, 
and takes displaced refugees and finds them a home in another country. That's what Israel wants. They want the UNRWA completely out of the way and the UNHCR to take over and to take all of these horrible Palestinians somewhere else. That's, that's uh, the little dream that every little Israeli Nazi fosters in his heart when he goes to sleep at night. Uh, we've uh, seen a Channel 4 investigation into it that managed to get the allegations, a copy of the allegations as Israel made to the UN and said there is absolutely no evidence in here whatsoever, merely a, a, a collection of blunt, bland, unsubstantiated accusations, nothing else. There's no, there's no proof or evidence, anything whatsoever, only the accusation. And acting only on that accusation, United States and European countries have cut their funding. While, specifically while the Gazans are needing food, any kind of food to come in. Um, but this week, James Alder, the spokesman for the United Nations Children's Fund, uh, wait, no, wait, um, I've got that, uh, that's the, uh, the wrong article I'm looking at. Oh, dear me. Yes, here you go. <clears throat> the Minister of Foreign Affairs of the European Union, Joseph Borrell, uh, this week said Israel has not presented any solid evidence about the links between the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine refugees in the Near East and Hamas. There's no link between UNRWA and Hamas. No evidence whatsoever, he said this week. He called the allegations an Israeli campaign and an attempt to kill the agency. During a closed discussion in Brussels that lasted two and a half hours, Borrell called for continuing European support for UNRWA. Earlier in January, the EU, one of the largest agency's donors, suspended the funding over the October 7 attack links allegations. While the emotions prompting suspensions of funding are understandable, political responsibility has to look beyond the emotions and consider the consequences of such a step. Defunding UNRWA would be both disproportionate and dangerous, said Borrell. He added, in Gaza alone, 13,000 local staff who are themselves victims of the ongoing humanitarian tragedy are playing a critical role in distributing food, water and medicine to 1.1 million people suffering from catastrophic hunger and the outbreak of disease. According to the statement that followed the EU's suspension of the financing, no additional funding to the agency is foreseen until the end of February. The European Commissioner is said, uh, Commission is said to review the matter depending on the outcome of the investigation. The EU appears divided over the decision, while its top diplomat Borrell, as well as Spain and Belgium, advocate continuation of support. Most EU members, including Germany, Austria, the Czech Republic and others, back the funding suspension. Spain will send the UNRWA an additional 3.5 million euros in aid, uh, said Foreign Minister José Manuel Álvarez on Monday. In the United States, the Committee on Foreign Affairs in the U.S. Congress uh, on Wednesday held a hearing regarding UNRWA allegations. The participants are said to have agreed that the agency failed in every imaginable way without actually seeing any evidence whatsoever. And in the meantime, good old Britannia rules the waves. 
Ah, how long, long, long ago, how far, far away that old world is now. Hmm? With the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805 off the Spanish Atlantic coast, under the command of Admiral, Admiral Horatio Nelson, a British fleet attacked a combined Spanish and French fleet and utterly destroyed it thereby asserting Britain's dominance of the seas, which lasted for a good 150 years until probably somewhere around World War II. Um, uh, certainly until uh, World War I, uh, or shortly before World War I, Britain was the undisputed ruler of the waves. And... Um, uh, with the emergence of uh, of steel ships, of diesel-powered ships, that made World War One the world's first oil war. Did you know that? You know, World War One was, in actual fact, the world's first oil war uh, because ships uh, that could run on diesel could go further and could go faster than coal-burning uh, ships or wood-burning ships. And uh, as a result... Uh, the country with the most uh, diesel-powered ships would be the strongest in the world. And very rapidly, America and Japan started arming. Japan suddenly like, jumped up out of nowhere, like, like out of the, um, the, the samurai Middle East feudal tradition straight into to modern um, uh, steelworks. And it's amazing how quickly uh, Japan was able to modernize take on Russia and the United States and China. Hmm? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that truly amazing? It's outstanding. It's that sort of thing for a small little country to suddenly turn itself around and suddenly, overnight almost, become strong enough to fight the United States, China, and Russia. You know, in, in, in a matter of just a few short years. Suddenly... Uh, Japan like went whoop and then was suddenly crushed back down again. But it's still a major power today. So anyway, um, the British, the British uh, suddenly found there many competing powers coming out against them. Everyone chasing diesel-powered ships, and that means everyone is chasing diesel and the source of diesel, and that's oil. So Britain then, uh, after World War Two, Britain was bankrupt. Two world wars that handed away most of its uh, foreign possessions to the United States in exchange for bolts and uh, and and chocolates and and a few weapons. And uh, after the Suez Canal crisis in uh, 1958, Britain had very much clearly been pushed off the world stage as a major power. In fact, the Foreign Office. Uh, which was the um, the institution that Britain used to manage its empire all of those years. It never actually had a, a department of empire or something. Um, it's, uh, it's foreign office. All of its files, lock, stock, and smoking barrel, were put onto a ship and taken across to Washington. Uh, some historians who like to speak about... Um, how after Rome divided in the Eastern and Western empires, the, the, the crown of empire split between the East and the West. 
Uh, the Western Crown was taken over by Russia, and the Eastern Crown uh, like wended its way around Europe, uh, going from uh, going from um, going from Rome onto France under the Carolingian rulers uh, Charles and uh, Charlemagne, uh, and uh, after after France then moved uh, then moved into Germany with the Habsburgs. The Habsburgs then also moved into Spain, and then from the Habsburg it moved to Spain, and the 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 the, the, the Western Crown was then carried by Spain for a few years, uh, then moved into France, spent a little bit of time in uh, in Holland, and then hopped across the Channel and popped itself on Queen uh, Queen Queen Elizabeth I's head, and uh, Britain then wore that crown. Uh, until the world wars broke out, uh, after which it was popped along with the uh, files from the Foreign Office and sent across to the United States. So what we've got now is rivalry between the Eastern and Western crowns of uh, of the white world, I suppose you could say. Uh, anyway, that's, a, that's an interesting little historical aside while we look at things. So anyway, Britain loves to dream about its maritime uh, prowess and the years when it ruled the waves. And uh, they do like to make little sojourns every now and then into nostalgia and to try to bring it alive into the modern world. One of these attempts was uh, um, with the launching of one of its um, new um, aircraft carriers. So here's another story which came out this week. It says British rulers think they can start a war against Russia. They can't even contain Yemeni fighters in the Red Sea. And its top-notch aircraft carrier just got towed away before it even saw action. Delusions about Great Britain and its mighty military power are laughable. Britain is nothing but a rogue state whose arrogance and delusions are, like its American overseer, a danger to global security and peace. Britain's Royal Navy flagship, the recently built aircraft carrier Queen Elizabeth, has embarrassingly been forced to pull out of a major NATO wardrobe due to a mechanical breakdown. HMS Queen Elizabeth is supposed to be the showpiece of Britain's military firepower. Built at the cost of $5 billion, the warship is spanking new. It is built as a supercarrier. The vessel is not just a flagship for the Royal Navy, it's a flagship for Britain. At the last minute, the ship had to cancel participation in the huge NATO war exercises currently underway across Europe. One of its propellers was discovered to be faulty. Instead of leading Britain's contingency into the biggest NATO mobilization since the Cold War, the aircraft carrier is now laid up in a repair yard. Uh, the weeks along NATO war maneuvers known as Steadfast Defender. Oh, boy. They love to come up with these nonsense. Yeah? They love themselves so much. Known as Steadfast Defender are intended as a demonstration of robust military power to Russia. Coming at a time of heightened tensions over the war in Ukraine, the NATO exercises across northern Europe and Scandinavia are viewed by Moscow as a veiled threat. The rehearsal for a war involves 90,000 troops from over 30 nations and a mod of warships and nuclear-capable fighter jets flown from the U.S. The failure of HMS Queen Elizabeth to muster at the crucial moment 
only adds to Britain's embarrassment. It underscores the criticism voiced even by British military experts that the country is not fit to wage a modern war, contrary to the bellicose posturing of British politicians and military commanders, certainly not against Russia, whose advanced firepower has been proven against NATO-backed Ukraine. Moreover, several independent military analysts contend that the entire U.S.-led NATO alliance is no match for Russia, nor China for that matter. After all, the U.S. and NATO allies were forced to retreat from Afghanistan in 2021, unable to defeat Taliban insurgents despite 20 years of occupying that country. During the last two years of conflict in Ukraine, Russian forces have been able to destroy a vast array of weapons supplied by NATO. Admittedly, the Ukrainian regime has occasionally been able to inflict grievous damage on Russia. The killing of 28 people at the weekend in the city of Lyschansk with U.S.-supplied HIMARS rockets 1,200 kilometers away from Ukraine is a case in point. The shooting down of a Russian transport plane with U.S. Patriot missiles when it was carrying the Ukrainian prisoners of war on board uh, with a loss of 74 is another example. Nevertheless, the NATO arsenal at the disposal of Ukraine has not succeeded in enabling any strategic gain against Russia. As former Pentagon advisor Doug McGregor and others have noted, Russia has all but won the proxy war. The implication is that the U.S. and its NATO allies are outgunned by superior Russian military technology. Therefore, the deployment of NATO's forces in the current war maneuvers in Europe is something of a toothless tiger. That said, however, the provocation to Moscow is still a dangerous escalation in hostilities, considering the potential for miscalculation between nuclear powers. The saga of Britain's super aircraft carrier is an apt metaphor. Britain and its NATO allies are more and more a, proje- a projection of image without substance. It's more psychological operation to intimidate rather than an actual effective offensive capability. Soon after completing sea trials only a couple of years ago, HMS Queen Elizabeth's first assignment was a world tour to show off global Britain. For post-Brexit Britain with the bumptious Boris Johnson in Downing Street, the spectacle was meant to advertise rule Britannia in the modern age. The nostalgia for former imperial glory is cringe-making, but it is essential to the British myth of greatness. Fast forward to the present. Britain's navy is deployed in the Red Sea, helping the Americans bomb Yemen, the poorest country in the Arab region. The Anglo-American duo are supposedly defending international shipping from Yemeni forces who have interdicted the vital sea route in an act of solidarity with Palestinians being slaughtered in Gaza by U.S.-armed Israel. After the last salvo of missiles on Yemen at the weekend, British Foreign Minister David Cameron warned the Yemeni armed forces to stop targeting merchant ships trying to transit the Red Sea. Who does Lord Cameron think he is? The Yemenis have told the Eton-educated Ponce to shove his edicts. They say their blockade on shipping will continue until Britain's genocidal offensive in Gaza is ended. The United States and Britain could stop the Gaza horror immediately if they cease supporting Israel with weapons and political cover. The Yemeni Ansarullah movement government is allied with other resistance groups in Syria, Iraq and Lebanon as well as Iran. They all say it is the United States and Britain who are destabilizing the region with their reckless aggression and support of the Israeli genocide. The Biden administration is currently bombing three countries, Iraq, Syria and Yemen, and threatening to attack Iran, all in support of Israel's criminal annihilation of Palestinians. 
Britain has deployed a guided missile destroyer, HMS Diamond, to hit Yemen, along with American warships. Turns out, though, that the British destroyer does not have the missiles capable of striking Yemeni land from the sea. The Royal Air Force is having to fly tornado fighter jets to Cyprus in the East Mediterranean from where they take off to drop bombs on Yemen. That's roughly a 10,000-kilometer round trip. This show of might is farcical, if not pathetic. For such a supposedly vital defense of international shipping, one would think that Britain should have dispatched its flagship aircraft carrier to partner with the U.S. counterpart USS Dwight Eisenhower in the Red Sea. Just as well, London did not. With a broken propeller, the HMS Queen Elizabeth would have been a sitting duck for the Yemenis. Rather than the Union Jack, the Brits could quite possibly have been running up the white flag. Several respected military analysts say the British and American forces in the Red Sea have badly underestimated the Yemeni operation. Former CIA, CIA analyst Larry Johnson and former U.S. Marine Intelligence Officer Scott Ritter have both said that the Yemenis possess drones and ballistic missiles capable of sinking the U.S. and British ships. With the mounting attacks by the Yemenis, it's only a matter of time before one of the American or British warships is sunk. The multiple barrages that the U.S. and Britain have carried out on Yemen since January 12, at least 16 rounds of airstrikes on dozens of locations, have not deterred the Yemenis in the slightest. Uh, analysts say that is because the Yemeni weapons are buried deep underground or are highly mobile systems that can evade strikes. To say the least, Britain has a serious image and reality problem. It proclaims to be defending freedom of navigation and international law. The reality is, Britain is once again acting as America's attack dog, as it always does. This time, the Brits are more likely an old bulldog whose legs are gone. Arrogant, delusional British politicians haven't realized yet that Great Britain is nothing but a broken-down, has-been empire whose heyday was over a century ago. Its economy and society are decrepit and falling apart from a failed capitalist system that generates rampant inequality and poverty. There was a distant time when Britain was a formidable naval power. Now its flagship aircraft carrier breaks down before it has even fired a shot. If ever there was a fitting image of modern Britain's true state, this is it. Got about five minutes left. Um, and let's have a look at um, um, Genocide Joe's problems in America. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's diplomatic efforts seeking a pause in hostilities in exchange for a complete release of Israeli hostages held in Gaza has been rebuffed by Netanyahu, pledging total victory instead. He says, uh, Adina Moshe, uh, addressing Netanyahu through a news conference with fo uh, other former hostages. She, is, uh, she said, I'm very afa afraid that if you continue on this path to dismantle Hamas, there will be no more hostages to release. Meanwhile, in the U.S., the political consequences of President Joe Biden's unreserved support for Israel's assault on Gaza are emerging. Last week, Blinken participated in a roundtable discussion in Gaza in Washington, D.C. Among those invited was Dr. Tariq Haddad, a cardiologist and member of the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights. He grew up in Gaza. Haddad decided at the last minute not to attend. Instead, he sent Blinken a heart-wrenching 12-page letter. It opened, 
After a lot of soul-searching, I have decided that I cannot in good conscience meet with you today. Knowing this administration's policies have been responsible for the death of over 80 of my family members, including dozens of children. The suffering of hundreds of my, my, my remaining family, the famine my family is currently subjected to, and the destruction of all my family's homes. By the time Tariq Haddad appeared on um, uh, television screens around the country, several days later, his family death toll had climbed. He said, choke him up several times on TV. I've had about 100 family members at this point who have been killed, including physicians, pharmacists, lawyers, engineers, dozens and dozens of children, multiple small babies. On October 25th, 10 members of my family, all three generations of one side of my family, were all killed. My cousin Jamal F. Farah, his son, who is a physician, Dr. Taufik El Farah, his wife, who was pregnant, two of their beautiful daughters, Reem and Hala, Jamal's brother Isam, brother Samad, and their daughters Rasul Tuka and Nadian, all, multiple generations, all killed in one Israeli missile strike. Tuka, one of the younger women in the family, her wedding date was the day she was killed. Space does not allow for Haddad's full account of a family killed in Gaza. His letter was illustrated with photos of many of those killed while they were still living, smiling, celebrating marriages, births, and academic achievements, all despite Israel's brutal siege imposed on Gaza in 2006. But Haddad is not alone in his anguish. The critical electoral swing vote of Michigan is home to one of the largest Arab-American populations in the U.S. Many of them are lifelong Democratic supporters who are now saying they can't support Joe Biden in the upcoming election. Biden's campaign advisors are getting worried. In late January, Abdullah Hamoud, the mayor of Dearborn, Michigan, and the first Muslim elected to that office, refused to meet uh, Biden campaign manager Julie Chavez Rodriguez. People feel betrayed, uh, Mayor Hamoud uh, said at the time. We were promised in 2020 a president who was going to bring back decency to the White House, who led with humanity. And what we've seen since October 7 is anything but. We have seen an alignment with Benjamin Netanyahu and the most right-wing government in Israel's history. We cannot, for the life of us, understand why. Mahmoud, or rather Hamoud, is leading a movement to pressurize Biden to, reme- to demand an immediate ceasefire. He says Michigan voters are sending Biden a clear message in the February 27 Democratic primary that he can count us out. We are filling out the uncommitted bubble because we strongly reject Biden's funding war and genocide in Gaza. Biden must earn a vote through a dramatic change in policy, they said. And with that, I'm afraid we've run out of time. Well, mm, a very interesting. Things are very much in flux everywhere around the world, particularly in our own country, where we're also headed for an election this year. Who do we vote for? Mm, it seems like um, the, uh, the system is throwing out its usual collection of unacceptable alternatives. It's a difficult one for all of us. Well, uh, I can't give you any advice at all, I'm afraid. You're going to have to make up your mind all on your own. I also, I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't see how we can continue rewarding um, recidivist ANC incompetence. And yet at the same time, who else is there to vote for? 
Well, I'll leave you to think, uh, to think, that, uh, think about that for the rest of the weekend, inshallah. I'll be back on Sunday morning between 7 and 9. I've been dumped onto the breakfast show, I'm afraid. So, yeah, first thing Sunday morning, there I'll be bright and cheerful, hopefully. Jazakum Allah for joining us. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.